Let me ask you a question this morning. How should we, who love, or let me say it this way, how should love, if you don't want to make it that personal, how should love respond to betrayal and denial? How should love, how should we who love, make it more personal, respond in situations when we're faced with betrayal and denial? I want you to think of marriages. When a spouse is unfaithful and breaks the marriage covenant by an extramarital affair, without a doubt it is incredibly painful experience that we wish none of us would ever go through. We wish none of our friends would go through. But the reality is we do know people who go through those painful moments. How do we encourage the spouse that feels betrayed? How should we pray for them? How does biblical love respond to such painful experiences as betrayal or denial in relationships. I would like for you to open your scripture, your Bibles, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. For those of you who are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, or read Bibles, you may find this passage on page number 935. 935. As you turn there, just a quick reminder of where we've been in this series on the Gospel of John. The first 12 chapters uh, were addressed by Jesus, focused specifically to the crowds in general, his followers, but also people in general, whom he has called to come and believe in him and follow him. First 12 chapters of John are addressed to the crowds, to everyone, Jesus calling people to believe in him. But starting with chapter 13 to 17, everything Jesus will say will be addressed specifically and exclusively to the 12, to his disciples. Everything from chapter 13 to 17 is only to his disciples. And then chapters 18 through 20 is an account of the passion story of Christ, his suffering. And then chapter 21, an ending So we must realize that right now in chapter 13, as we begin reading this chapter, there's a major turn in this gospel. Now Jesus is talking to those who have committed their lives to him. And everything that happens starting from from chapter 13 to chapter 20 happens within 24 hours span. I want you to realize that. Everything we we read from this chapter to the end of chapter 20 of this gospel So for the next seven weeks, everything that we'll talk about happens within 24 hours of Jesus' death. It's as if the camera, for those of you who like cinema film, it's as if the camera is going in slow motion. That's what we're seeing starting with chapter 13. Let's start reading there. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his hand, his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts one, anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one I, who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to be. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to go, some, to go and give something. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Amen. This was a word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Let's ask God to speak to us, speak to our hearts this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God who calls us, those who belong to you, your children. Father, we pray that you speak to us and comfort our hearts and souls and teach us your words. We need the Holy Spirit for this task, and we ask for it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, the very first verse of chapter 13 functions as a heading to the entire section of, of the rest of John from this point on. And there's, there's one, the first heading, the first title, subheading to, to the sermon, first point I want to bring to you that John is, is, is making very evident, emphasizing is the extent of his love. The extent of his love. Look at verse 1. Having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. How deep is the love of Christ? How big is the love of Christ? Could we ever understand it? Those of us who are Christians, the only reason why we're able to be Christians is because there was a moment in time when we have understood the love of Christ for us, his enemies, and we have surrendered to him. And yet, Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus that they might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Even though Christians have been touched by the love of Christ, there's still room to grow to grasp this love for us. Do you know that? Do you realize there's more room to grow in grasping the love of Christ for us? And yet here in chapter 13, we see a practical picture of what that love does. Very practically. Very vividly. Foot washing. Now we've got to say a few things about foot washing in the ancient Jewish world to understand what was going on here. Foot washing in the ancient Jewish world was not only reserved for the lowest level of servants, but some Jews even believed that male Jewish servants should not be asked to do this task. 
that it was supposed to be reserved only for Gentile servants or for women or for students. When John the Baptist, do you remember John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus to the world and he said, I am not worthy to untie his shoelaces? Now, why would anyone want to untie someone's shoelaces unless he was getting ready to wash feet? John the Baptist thinks that Jesus is such a great value and worth that he is not even worthy to do the lowest of the lowest acts of a servant in that day. And yet, when Jesus comes to his disciples... He, of whom John the Baptist was not worthy to untie the shoelaces, he now gets up, wraps a towel around his waist, gets a bowl of water, and starts washing the feet of his disciples. He, the teacher, the Lord, the Messiah, He acted as the lowliest of servants, and it was a social embarrassment, as Peter will show us. Peter is socially embarrassed by this. He will not want Jesus to wash him. Why did Jesus do this? To show them the extent of his love. The act of food washing was a display of the love Jesus had for these disciples. Now, we have to say the act of food washing was barely scratching the surface in revealing to us one facet of Christ's love. It's a love that displays itself in voluntary engagement in the most menial services in the Jewish world. In the most humbling services in the Jewish world. Now, if these disciples had a hard time with the foot washing that Jesus acted on them, as we will see with Peter. If foot washing was a break of social norms in order to show them the extent of his love, just wait a few more hours until the full extent of that love will be displayed in the cross. If these disciples had a hard time with foot washing, no wonder they will be totally bewildered by the cross. But there's more to the story of foot washing than Jesus just doing the most menial services for his disciples. The act of foot washing exposes the betrayal which was determined in the Old Testament scriptures. And the act of foot washing identifies, or, or in the event of foot washing, right after we see the identification of the betrayer in exact fulfillment of the Old Testament. More so, it's after the foot washing that Jesus exposes Peter's enthusiasm as being empty and weak, although he was very flamboyant. It was very verbal. He was weak. It was right here after these moments of foot washing that Jesus exposes and tells Peter that he will deny the Lord. Now, friends, I want you to realize from the very people 
we would expect commitment, we see betrayal and denial. And what's most surprising? Jesus doesn't find out about this after the fact, like we typically do. Jesus knew it before it happened. And yet, it is a feat of these disciples he chooses to wash. Now think with me for a second. It's not simply that Jesus just engages in the most menial acts of service, but he does it in full knowledge that some of them will, in three to six hours from that moment of washing their feet, some of them will betray and deny them. Have you ever been betrayed? Or abandoned? Do you remember the feelings of anger in your heart? Or even the paralyzing disappointment? If you've never experienced betrayal, blessed are you. Pray that those experiences will never come to you. But even if that's you this morning, what about times when another person did something or said something to you that got you very, very upset or really disappointed you? Think about it. Think, for one of, think of the last moment, last experience you had that way. Do you remember how you reacted? You probably could not look at the other person in the eye. Perhaps you didn't want to talk to them for days. You may have said something like, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you said this. Now, don't look at me as if those things never happened to you. They happen all the time. They happen in marriages. They happen in friendships. They happen in churches, among members who supposedly love each other. I can't believe you said this. Oh, I can't believe he said this about me. After all I've done for you, this is how you respond? I'm done with you. I'm gone. Right? You've been there? You know what Jesus did? He washed feet. Friends, unless we understand that Jesus washed their feet in the moments when he exposed a betrayal and a denial, we miss the full weight of the kind of love Jesus showed them in the washing of their feet. Jesus had every reason to be fed up with them. Jesus had every reason to be fully disappointed with them, to the max. That's it. It's done. And yet, he doesn't walk away. Instead, he engages in the most humiliating of services. You know why? Because he loved them. And wanted to show them the full extent of his love. Friends, some of you this morning, when you get out of the service, you need to go home and wash some feet. I'm not talking literally. But do the most unexpected, the most humbling act of service you've ever done for someone who may have hurt you. Before you do that, 
you can confess your sin before God right now. And you may have acted sinfully against the sin of others against you. Our hearts are so sinful that we have a hard time humbling ourselves even before the people we most love. Think for a moment, how hard is it when you, the husband, have wronged your wife and it's hard for you to say, honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Why is it that we have a hard time humiliating ourselves to the own members of our own family? Physical family, let alone others, let alone the church, let alone other people among us. We have a hard time engaging in acts of humility even before the most loved people on planet earth. That's how sinful our human hearts are. And before we engage in acts of foot washing, symbolic foot washing, if you will, we must start with God and deal with Him and confess our sin before Him. What an example Jesus gives us. Instead of walking away from them, instead of being fed up with them, He washed their feet. Why? Because the foot washing was a way to show them the extent of His love. And yet, this is just the first thing. The foot washing was not the final extent of his love. It was just scratching the surface. The foot washing itself was a pointer to the ultimate moment when Jesus will die, crucified for his own sheep. The foot washing is a pointer to the effects of the cross. Why did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? One, because he wanted to show them the extent of his love. Second, because he wanted to show them the effects of the cross. Notice when Jesus gets to Peter. Peter refuses to be washed by Jesus. Look at verse 6. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Now, that's how embarrassing it was for Peter to let Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, wash his feet. But just as Peter was not able to get that the Messiah was going to suffer, remember Caesarea Philippi? Just as Peter was never able to understand that the Messiah was going to suffer, now he cannot comprehend that the Messiah would want to do the lowest acts of a slave was supposed to do. This means that people who can't understand the cross can't understand the act of foot washing. People who can't understand the cross can't understand the act of foot washing. Now, Jesus' answer is very cryptic, but powerful. Look at what Jesus says. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus is not referring here simply to the act of washing the feet. That act alone was a symbol of another washing which Jesus will accomplish through his blood. His blood will cleanse these disciples if they believe the words of Jesus about his identity and his mission of what he will do for them in their place. Now, Peter did not understand this. Peter did not understand the cross at that moment. He thinks Jesus' physical foot washing somehow will magically accomplish this cleansing. So, normally, Peter responds back, Then, Lord, 
not just my feet, my hands and my head as well. Now, how do we know that Jesus is using foot washing as a symbol of the washing about to happen through his death? Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, A person who had had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And listen to this. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Now, I just want you to understand the full meaning of those words. John tells us, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Clearly, Jesus is referring here to Judas. Now, Jesus washed the feet of Judas also. And even though, even though Jesus himself washed the feet of Judas, Jesus could not say about Judas that he was clean as he was, going to, as he was able to say about his other disciples. This tells us that the act of foot washing itself is a symbol of the washing Jesus will do by his blood. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the only means by which we can be cleansed of our sins. That's why Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's not the, unless I wash you physically, because Jesus was washed physically too. It's about unless I wash you through my blood, you have no part with me. Friends, this is a picture of God's salvation. The God, salvation God offers us. He wants us to belong to Christ, to be united with Christ, to have ownership and partake of the glories given to Christ. But our rebellion, our sin, our desire for control for our lives separate us from Christ. The only way for us to be united with Christ is and to share in His inheritance is if, if He washes us, our guilt, our sins, our rebellion by His blood, cleansing us of our sin. That's why one of the many pictures in the Bible of being saved is that our sins have been washed away. That's why the public act by which we declare to the world that we are now followers of Christ is this act that we do here in this, in this baptistry when we fill it with water. And the act of going underwater, there, there's a number of symbolisms, but one of them is that it's an act of being washed. It's not the water that washes us, but it's a very visible picture of the gospel that our sins have been washed away because we die with Christ and resurrect with Him to a new life. The water is just a symbol, but it's a symbol of what God has done for us, for our sins. He washed them away in the blood of Christ. So friend, if you are not a Christ follower this morning, God is pleading with you to turn away from your sin and come to Him, trusting what Christ has done for you on the cross. He died so that His blood could make you clean, so that He could clean your guilty conscience before God, so that He could walk, wash away everything you have done evil in His sight. Perhaps you are here this morning and think that you've done too many things, too many bad things. God is, God is, not, gonna, God is not going to cleanse you again 
Friend, perhaps you're struggling with this thought. Will God ever be able to, cl- to cleanse me again? If you turn to Him and repent of your sin and believe what Christ has done for you, He will make you clean. And friends, if, if you're struggling with this thought and with this desire, you don't know which way to turn, I encourage you, come and talk to me at the end of the service. Or don't leave this place without talking to someone here about your struggle and your desire. Oh, friend, if you are not a Christ follower this morning, I pray that you would be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, if you have asked God to save you, if you've asked God to cleanse you, let me ask you, have you shown that through the public act of baptism? If you have not, I encourage you to obey God's command, to declare to the world your faith and trust that Christ has washed your sins away and make that declaration by the physical act of baptism. That is how we know when people give their lives to Christ. If you are a Christian and you have been baptized upon your profession of faith, friend, do you delight in the truth that Jesus has washed your sins away? And He has washed you and made you clean, not so that you can go back and be dirty again. He washed you, made you clean, so you can stay clean, so you can be clean for Him, so you may sin no more. So you may walk in the cleansing that Christ accomplished for you. I love the words of the hymn we sing here quite often. There's a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And the next verse says, A dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. That's a picture of God's salvation. Have you been cleansed? Are you rejoicing in that cleansing? When temptation comes and sin comes to your door, are you fighting it off? Are you seeking repentance when you failed? Or are you hiding it? Are you explaining it away, stubbornly remaining your sin? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples to show them, in anticipation, the effect of his cross. That's why Jesus told Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So why did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? To show them the full extent of his love, to show them the effects of his cross, but a third reason, final reason, to show them the love of Christians for one another, to define for them the love Christians must have for one another. Notice verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I have done for you? Now, Peter, Jesus just asked Peter a few verses earlier, you won't get this now, but you'll get it later. And now, Jesus says, do you understand? Well, Jesus is not forgetting what he just said earlier. He's simply saying, there is something you must understand now, even though you will not understand it all in fullness until after the cross. There's something you must understand now. Jesus says in verse uh, 17, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. Jesus gives instructions how his disciples should relate to one another. But Judas was not part of the circle. Jesus is giving these instructions specifically to those who claim to be members of God's community. 
there is a sense in which we are called to, to love one another, those who proclaim the name of Christ upon them, in a deeper way than we're called to love anybody else, everybody else. There's a deeper commitment. There's a, a more constant commitment that we don't have with those who don't belong to Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It is after Jesus, Judas left that Jesus, for the first time, calls, him, calls his disciples my children. Jesus, Judas is gone. So after, after Jesus addresses his disciples as my children, he breaks in the news that he's moving away to the Father. And the disciples can't follow him there. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 14, Jesus will tell them, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can come also. You will come there later, but not now. So what should you do in the interim? What should you do between now and the time you will come to be with me? There's the one thing I want you to do. Love one another. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the command to love others was not new to Jews. Old Testament was full of descriptions that they were supposed to love each other. So what was new about this command? The newness is the comparison. Up until now, they were supposed to love others as themselves. Love your neighbor as yourself, said Jesus. That was the greatest of the commandments, or part of it. Now Jesus says, love others. Love one another as I have loved you. Now at this point in the story, the greatest act of Christ's love was only the foot washing. They haven't seen the cross. Loving by engaging in the most humble service. That's what it means at this point. In the next few chapters, Jesus will speak explicitly about his death. But at this point, Jesus' love was displayed through humble service. And that means that our love for one another is supposed to be a love expressed to humble service. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, do you love one another in this way? It's not about just loving other people in general. It's about showing this love to one another. This means there's an actual community with which we live regularly and with which we meet consistently. If you can't love like Christ, you can't serve like Christ. People can serve without loving, but you can't love without serving. Some of you are surprised. Think of customer service departments and businesses. They're there. We're here to serve you. They don't love you. They're just trying to get your money. That's why they serve you. You can serve without loving people. Can I break the news for you? There are people who can serve the church without loving the people of the church. There are people who can serve the church and the things of God without loving the people of God. They give them any task and they'll do it on their own. But don't ask them to hang out with people. Don't ask them to actually spend time with others. Don't ask them to get involved in other people's lives. They'll do any task 
you give him to do, but don't ask him to love people. I want to talk to you about this kind of false service that sometimes we may engage into. It's a worldly service. Just because we do it in church doesn't mean it's godly. Friends, it's possible that people may be willing to do stuff for the church, but don't want to get their hands dirty in washing the dust of people's feet. They don't want to get involved in the messiness of people's lives. They don't want to make themselves available to meet with people, to have lunch or coffee or get together during the week. They want the church just to come to on Sunday mornings. Now, here's how this is carried out today, and I'm not speaking of any of you today. I'm just speaking of other people out there. An increasing number of Christians prefer to be attending church without getting involved and without committing themselves to a particular church. Such people want to have a place to attend on Sunday mornings where they feel fed, where they hear a good program, and then they leave. And they don't want to get involved. They don't want to roll up their sleeves and commit themselves to the loving care of other people. They think they can live their Christian lives by themselves. And all they need is a place where they can attend on Sunday mornings to hear good singing and an inspiring sermon. Friends, such a Christian life shows little to no signs of a desire to love one another as Christ loved us. I'll be honest with you, we do have this tendency with some of our members who have moved away. Some of them have moved away for more than two years. And they still have not found or committed themselves to another local church in their new place. And we need to encourage them to say, you need to start loving one another in that new place and find that community whom you're going to love like one another. And the reason why I tell you this now is not to to tell, tell on them. I just want to encourage you. When you talk to them on the phone, when you talk to them via email, ask them nicely, how is, it their, how is their search for a new home church? Have they committed to join it? In other words, we need to encourage them to be in communities where now they are committed to other people other than us. We cannot love them anymore in the same way we, we used to when they were here. We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know their struggles, their joys. We can't encourage them as as we once were able to. And now we are called to ask them to find another community where they're going to do the same kind of one another loving and serving as they once did when they were here. So I want to encourage you, when you talk to those out-of-the-area members, especially those who've been out of the area for, for quite a while and still have not found a church, encourage them to find a church. Well, perhaps even, perhaps even you right here, you, those of you who are members, well, those of you who are attending our church, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. But we hope we would be more than just a place for you to come on Sunday mornings. And if that's what you're looking for, I mean, you can stick around as long as you want to, but that's not what we are. We want to be a community where people have the kind of relationships where they engage in one another loving and one another serving like Christ served us. And we can't do that without commitment. We can't do that without knowing who's in and who's out. So we encourage you. And perhaps you're a member of this church and you don't mind being assigned tasks to do for the church. But for you, the greater struggle is actually just to love on people. Friends, one of the clear signs, one of the clear signs that God has changed your heart 
is that he gives you a new love for people that you didn't have before. This is inevitable, and this love is expressed by a desire to be with other Christians in the community. It's a desire to develop friendships with other fellow Christians, to be committed to them, to serve them, not just the institution of the church. That's what the local church is all about. That's why the most clear context of living out this command of loving one another and serving one another as Christ did for us is the local church. Now, friends, the command to love one another is important not only because it's an assurance of our changed hearts, but it's also because it affects our evangelism. When a local church is filled with members who love each other in this way, it's an incredibly compelling witness to the gospel. It's a greatest evangelism program. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How will we show others that we are disciples of Christ? How will we show others that what it means to be a disciple of Christ? By our love for one another, by our commitment to one another, by our service to one another, by our affections for one another. So why did Jesus wash his feet, the feet of his disciples? To show them the extent of his love, to show them the effects of the cross, and to show them the kind of love they're supposed to have among each other. And I want to close this morning with what Jesus said. Now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray.